named one of the most creative people in business. Debbie Millman is a designer, podcaster, author, curator, educator. She is many things, and all of them stem from a constant desire to make things. We talk about her career arc and what seemed like almost a decade in the wilderness through failure to become one of the more iconic designers in the world today that has touched everything from Star Wars to Burger King to Tropicana to you walk into a grocery store and just about every line of sight while you're in there will have products that she has helped design the branding around. Phenomenally creative mind. We talk about her early creative memories all the way up to her most recent rejections. We talk about her mindset shift from a decade of failures to hitting her stride in her mid-30s and everything in between. It's a fascinating conversation with one of the most fascinating people that I could fortunately have on a podcast around the interior lives of creators. She is a dynamo with beautiful articulations of things that many creators I know have gone through and I know myself I've gone through but had no way of articulating. So if you like conversations like this one, right at the intersection of creation, entrepreneurship, technology, philosophy, hit that. No, you don't even have to hit, just lightly, ever so light, ever so lightly, graze that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app, on YouTube, hit the bell thing. I've actually never hit the bell thing, so I don't know what that does. But I think it helps if you do hit that, if you like these conversations, for you to hear more of them. And a note to listeners, there is some home improving going on right next door to Debbie. So you will hear those odd sounds in the beginning. They'll be gone after about 10 minutes into the episode. And, uh, and then it's a little clearer. So you can disregard those in the first few minutes, knowing that they will be gone a few minutes into the episode. So without further delay, let's get into it. With Debbie Millman. This is Below the Line. Debbie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you, James. It's really nice to be here. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a few weeks now, and it's all around really how you how I first came across you. And I I rarely I don't know if I ever plug any other podcast episodes for people to listen to, but I came across you originally through Tim Ferriss's podcast, and I highly recommend people listen to the episode you Thank all did you. about. Yes, my darling Tim. Yes, it's so, it is so, such a great episode. And what struck me most about you is not just the, the, the talent that you have and, and everything that you've created from writing to brands to being a painter, but also the narrative arc in your career of feeling like you kind of hit a stride in your early thirties. And I remember something so vividly about that episode and that you said during your twenties, you felt like you were, and this is my paraphrasing, felt like you were just failing a lot. You failed a lot in your twenties. Yes. And for someone so accomplished, um, and, and has done so much in what seems like such a short amount of time, it was almost unfathomable, unfathomable for me to think through, okay, this person had a whole decade that they felt like they were failing. And it gave, it gave me permission to, to say, I feel like I listened to that when I was about, uh, I just turned 30. I was like, yeah. Oh, like well, I'm glad it was able to help you. I mean, I don't really feel like I had any serious traction in my career until probably 13 or 14 years in. Um, that decade of failure and rejection in my twenties really extended into my thirties as well. Um, I, I had a really hard time at the very beginning and in, in those early years had no idea, um, how to make anything really happen for myself. I have to say, do you mind building that out for listeners of, of, you know, graduating school, feeling like, I imagine you're like every other 22 year old. Okay. A few years around the corner, this is going to, 
take off for me? Oh, but- yeah. I mean, I, I graduated. Well, I graduated SUNY Albany, State University of New York at Albany. I'm a native New Yorker and, and um, went to a state school. And I majored in English and Russian literature. So I now uh, joke that I have a degree, a college degree in reading. <laughs> Um, I didn't have any marketable skills from the actual degree that I got. Um, I had worked on the student newspaper in my senior year of college and learned on the job basic layout and paste up, which in the early 80s was the only thing you needed to know to be able to work as a layout and paste up artist. And so I graduated college in 1983 and um, hightailed it to Manhattan and looked for work in the publishing business and had fantasies of working at Condé Nast and being discovered and being a Rosalind Russell-like figure in His Girl Friday, you know, breaking the big stories, looking beautiful and glamorous all at the same time. And that didn't really pan out. <laughs> um, I just really fumbled from from one kind of uninteresting job to another, to another, to another. I had my own business for a while, but wasn't particularly proud of what we were doing and then tried to break into the New York design scene in a bigger way. And that was sort of marginally successful and then worked at a branding firm and was marginally successful. And at this point, we're talking 14 years into my career. Uh, And so really just went from one marginal experience to another and really had a career that was until the mid nineties, very circuitous and um, happenstance. What was the business that you, you started and what was the, it was a design business. It was a design business and I'm still friends with, with my then partner and and know quite a few people from those days still. Um, But we didn't really have any, um, we didn't really have anything that we were known for. You know, we didn't have anything exceptional about us. And so we, we kind of did what I would consider to be sweatshop kind of design work. It wasn't thoughtful and it wasn't anything that I was really proud of. And it certainly wasn't like anything that was being done in the New York design school at the time, which was work by Tibor Kelman and Drentel Doyle and Manhattan design and design firms that were really, really putting the New York school on the map. What made you decide to, to start? How old were you? What made you decide to start your own? I was 26 and I was working at a rock and roll magazine with the creative director who went ultimately went into business with. I was the managing editor and he was the creative director. And the editor in chief um, at the time, a wonderful, wonderful man named Rob Edelstein, who um, I'm still really close with to this day. So all those decades later, um, he offered me his job because he was so unhappy as the editor in chief working with the then publisher and I was the managing editor, he wanted to make a political statement by quitting. And when he offered me the opportunity to take his job, I thought, well, first of all, that's not a particularly loyal thing to do. And second, I felt that if I just slipped into his job, it wasn't really going to be much of a political statement. Like the publisher needed to hurt a little bit in order for it to be (laughs) worthwhile. And so I said, no, no, I can't take your job. And I didn't know it at the time, but he then offered his job to the, one of the other editors that were working underneath me. And one of them, a guy said, yes. And so within a couple of days, he leapfrogged me and became my boss. And At that point, I was really disillusioned and decided it was probably time for me to leave. And so Cliff, the creative director, was also unhappy with the publisher. Um, He and I decided sort of spur the moment to start a little design business of our own. This could be projection, but I I have started businesses and, and know people that have started businesses sometimes to get away from something. 
Sometimes it's a pull towards uh, something. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. It's a great point. I mean, I think at the time we were both highly entrepreneurial. We had a great relationship as friends. Uh, we worked really well together. And at the time, it seemed like an, almost a natural next step in some ways. I had enough money saved at the time. I, I, I joke about this as well to sort of live like Mahatma Gandhi for a year. And we just gave it our all and we did get business and we had some interesting business, but I, as a designer, really didn't know enough about the contribution I wanted to make to the design community in a way that would make a difference and ultimately felt like I needed to learn that in order to become a better designer and a better businesswoman. And I'm, I'm glad I did. I mean, he ended up keeping the business and selling it to draft FCB and did really, really well. And I was a bit envious of that at the time, but ultimately learned what I needed to, and then ultimately worked and, and developed a partnership in a business where I also in 2008 was able to be acquired by one of the, the large, one of the top three networks. So that made me really happy at the time. What were and okay, so continue with this this story to where you did feel like you hit a stride. Well, when I started at Sterling Brands in 1995, so I that was 12 years after I graduated, and even even in the early days at Sterling, I was still finding my feet. But I did hit my stride by I want to say 96, 97, 98 and realized that I had a talent for branding that I wouldn't necessarily say it was innate, but it was something that I was very good at very quickly. And at that point, started to really build a business and be successful at it. And it was really the first time I was ever successful at anything. And I, I don't think it's unreasonable for people to envision that because it was so intoxicating to be successful at something in any way, I, I just abandoned everything else that I was doing. I was just, I had, I then threw myself 24 seven into this business that I was successfully building. And so I gave up all my other side hustles and all my creative, um, all of the creative endeavors that I had been pursuing that were just enjoyable, not necessarily anything that I was going to bring to market, but things that really fulfilled me, writing, painting, um, needle craft, a lot of different things that I was doing. I just gave them up and, and really um, dedicated myself 24 seven to this business. And in the, the first so in 13 years, we were able to build it to a point where we were able to sell it to Omnicom. So from 1995 to 2008, that was that was pretty fast. Um, once I realized a certain level of success, I would say within, I don't know, eight or so years. So by 2003, 2004, I started to feel that my creative spirit was withering away and that everything I was doing at that time was all commercial. Every, every bit of creative work I was doing needed to have a return on an investment. And we, we everything was very marketplace driven and shareholder driven. And that person who was writing and drawing and making things really had ceased to exist. And I was um, really looking for a spark to bring some of that back. And that's when I started writing for Speak Up, uh, the first design blog. The very next year, I was offered an opportunity to host a radio show on a then-fledgling internet radio network that became the seeds of Design Matters, my podcast, which I've now been doing for 16 years. And then... Um, we were able to, to sell Sterling and I stayed for another eight years building that business and left in 2016 um, after I had already founded what's now the world's first master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts. So lots of different threads all at the same time. 
Well, I'm going to ask you about uh, almost each one, but continuing that, and maybe this is a misconception, but the the idea that there is this struggle and then hitting a stride, is that what it felt like? Did it feel like, okay, this is turning and this is, now I'm in a groove, or in 1999 and 2001, like in the midst of it, did it feel like this is still just pushing a boulder up, up a hill? In other words, I don't want to apply a misconception that it hit a groove when you look back and you realize, oh, this really did start to take off. Well, it, it started to gain momentum. Um, that momentum was thwarted a few times just by marketplace conditions um, in, 2000 and, in 2001 with 9-11. And then again in 2008, shortly after we were acquired by the recession. So there were moments of deep fear and trepidation wondering how the market was going to ever, if at all, respond to what was happening culturally. But other than those two years, we really had, from 1995 until 2015, um, other than those two years, year-on-year double-digit growth. So it was pretty remarkable. Um, There were several times where, obviously, things didn't go as planned, but for the most part, we had an incredible run that, that really did change my life. I had, a, we had a recent guest, Stephen Pressfield on the podcast. Who's, uh, God. Yeah. He's, he is, uh, he's amazing. Uh, and, and author of one of the best books on of all time. Yeah. War of art. Yes. And he, he was telling a story of, 27 years before no 20 yeah seven years before his first book was published from when he set out and said i'm going to write write for wow wow that's incredible that's a magic number because i think tim ferris went to i think 26 or 27 publishers before he was able to sell uh the four-hour work week well it's it is uh certainly i it's daunting just to hear that it's exhausting just to hear 27 years. But one of the more, one of the interesting things within that, that, that he also mentioned that has stuck with me, that there was a six year gap that he was quote unquote a writer, but he couldn't even bring out his typewriter in that 13 year, 14 year um, struggle to hit your stride. Were there moments of despair where you're like, this just isn't, is I'm not design is not for me or this. Oh, Jay, there were many moments of despair. The the interesting thing is I kept very diligent journals at that time, um, and so all of it is documented. And the despair in my life was palpable. It was almost like an underlying rhythm of ev- underneath everything, just being so wishful for a better life, but so unclear about how to go about getting it and feeling so, so much self-loathing about who I was and what I was capable of and, and so um, pessimistic about my possibilities and hopes. Um, I just remember writing and, and I, and I can, you know, go back to the, the entries where I was like, you know, what good am I? What will I ever amount to? I want so much. How will I ever be able to get anything? You know, a real underlying sense of, of sadness. Did the circumstances change and then the emotion change? Did the, did the mindset change? No, I think change I changed and first then- and then the circumstances began to change and then the emotions followed suit. So what really changed in my 30s was was starting therapy. And I do talk about that quite a lot with Tim. Um, and, and therapy saved my life. I mean, a lot of the despair was symptomatic of what I was experiencing in that moment. But the origin of that despair really came much earlier from a very violent and, and destructive childhood. So that was being played out by the way in which I was behaving in my day-to-day life in my 20s, and then in my early 30s, started therapy, which really helped me over the decades sort of deconstruct those earlier years to, to fully understand 
what I went through, why I went through it, how I went through it, and then ultimately on a very slow path to recovery, um, which still exists today. I'm still on that same path and, and still trying to make a life that I'm proud of. So it's not a story that has an end. It's just a continuing and ongoing journey to really find self-actualization. I love how you say it with enthusiasm um, in, in the sense that uh, I can say I I'm getting the sense that you really believe that is the, the goal um, is that is that or a placeholder is that a cultural uh, placeholder for this um, this pursuit? Well, you know, I'm really just sort of tongue in cheeking the whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, but but it is, there is something sincere in that as well, in that. I would like to continue to evolve until I die. You know, I don't want to have my best work behind me. Um, you know, one of the stories that I love to share about some of my best interviews, one of which is, I think, with uh, David Lee Roth, the lead singer of Van Halen. And when I was interviewing him, I, my interviews tend to be the arc of a person's life. And so, of course, we needed to talk about the 80s and his being or his being part of one of the most popular, if not the most popular band of the 1980s, Van Halen, and what it felt like in 1984 to really be the king of the universe and to have everything that anyone could ever ask for. He was one of, if not the most famous person on the planet. And I asked him what that felt like. What did it feel like at that moment in time to be that successful at everything? And he said, you have to be really, really careful when you reach the tippy, tippy top of the tallest mountain. Well, he didn't say tippy, tippy top, but you know what I mean? Um, Because when you reach that peak, that peak where it's the highest possible peak that you can even envision, um, you're often alone it's very cold and there's only one direction. And that really led me to understand the importance of being patient with your own journey and evolving and growing in a, in a way that allows you to essentially peak the day before you die. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think somebody like Milton Glaser did that. Um, so did Massimo Vignelli. Um, they, they did a lot of their best work in, in the years before they, they passed away. Um, somebody working today that I think is still doing her best work and continues to hit it out of the ballpark almost every time she's at bat is Paula Cher, the great, great designer who is still doing incredible work in you know her sixth decade working. That's, mm-hmm. that's something that is really important to me now as I get older and as I am working on you know this arc of my life. So does part of you feel fortunate that you didn't hit your stride or be involved well, okay, in some, you know, yeah, I mean, it's in, always, in your twenties? It's easy to look back and say, yes, of course. When I was going through it, you know, if I had said, Hey, Deb, just be patient in 30 years, you're going to be really happy. I would have been like, fuck you, Debbie. Fuck you, older Debbie. I want to be happy now. You know, I would not have been relieved to hear that. I would have been incredulous. And, and I wouldn't have believed it. Um, you know, this is what we, I guess, Dan Gilbert would call synthesizing happiness. You know, I can look back and say, well, if that hadn't happened in exactly that way, then I wouldn't be who I am now. And now I'm happy. So, yay. Um, I think that I can take it all in stride. But I also will say that when it does take longer, I think people tend to be more grateful that it happened at all. And that I do really appreciate having that sense of gratitude in in my life about being able to achieve anything when mm. it took a really long time to be able to do it crescendos are underrated <laughs> how how would you um contrast you you spoke about the mindset shift and therapy what would the how would you contrast post therapy um or post beginning therapy Debbie mindset versus the twenties Debbie mindset. What were the differences? 
Well, I have a lot more patience now. I'm not as, uh, I'm not as short tempered. Um, were you short, short tempered in your twenties? Yes, without a doubt. And I'm a Scorpio. We, we tend to be short tempered and, and, and long in being able to ever forgive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, one thing that I have understood, and I think that therapy gave me the awareness of asking myself what it meant to continue to try for things, to continue to aspire for things. And what I've come to understand is that in my life, I've always had one notch more hope than shame. And that hope has always propelled me to seek more and and want to be more or to be better. And, And that continues even to this day. I think your degree comes in quite handy because it's a beautiful, (laughs) beautiful articulation of one notch more hope than shame. Thank you. It is, uh, wow. For someone that's also said in previous interviews, I know you've mentioned, and and you talk about this in your own podcast as well, that uh, you're prone to hurt and rejection. You're very sensitive to rejection. I'm very sensitive to everything, James. Yeah, it's very hard for me to just say, you know, eh, whatever. You know, people are like, "Don't take it personally." I'm like a person. A person takes things personally. I'm not right. a machine. Of course, I'm going to take everything personally. I maybe am better now at calibrating how much I take it personally, but it's very hard to to be engaged and invested in anything and not take something personally. Is there something that you have? Uh, been rejected at or failed at recently as from the outside looking in it's and this is just always the case is always the the false notion that it is this crescendo that continues to go up but i always love telling founders look at any the stock just the stock tickers of the best companies in the world and there are troughs and peaks every hour um it doesn't even matter if it's amazon there and some of them last eight months and it could be a trillion dollar the most successful in their field entity uh, have but it's still so tantalizing to look from the outside in and someone's successful arc and just say wow it's okay she's done with rejection and failure she is she oh, stopped with no, that no, no, at no, no. Thir- no. 33 34 yeah. no 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 i still get rejected on a regular basis um I, last year, I, I wrote a piece that I was really proud of about the common denominators in the shortage of toilet paper and firearms. And I was really proud of this piece, really well-researched, um, sent it off to a whole slew of publications. Um, every single one rejected it until finally a, a, a publication that I'm part of ran it. Um, And I felt really, really rejected. I thought, what's wrong with this piece? A year later, one of those publications reached out to me to write something that I didn't even realize that I was on their radar because they had rejected this other piece. They, they, turns out they, they appreciated that piece. It just wasn't a good fit for the publication. So when they asked me to write something else, I was astonished because I felt like I was forever rejected. Um, but I'm rejected on a regular basis. I, I invite people to be on the show that say no. I ask people to participate in various endeavors that I'm a part of, and they say no. Um, I, I, I'm used to it. I actually expect rejection more than I expect success because of how much I've had of both. <laughs> but, but I do um, get really, really surprised when something happens that is really wonderful and successful. Like I still, there's, I never take that for granted ever. This episode is brought to you by a little sipper called magic mind. Ever wake up in the morning wondering what am I doing with my life? Well, what you probably aren't doing is sipping on them magic minds. Magic mind is a two ounce shot, matcha, nootropics, adaptogens, functional mushrooms, everything in a morning ritual drink that you've ever wanted. You take it alongside your morning coffee or tea, you get seven hours of creative, productive flow. It has 
12 magical ingredients that all combine for everything you'd want in a shot. Energy, cognition, de-stressing, immunity support, everything in this two-ounce beautiful shot that tastes delicioso. So go check it out, magicmind.co. Enter promo code BTL. That's BTL for below the line for 20% off. Magicmind.co. Go check it out and get them sippers. Of all of your creations, what are the ones you look back at? You feel like I'm, I'm, I feel so fortunate that that did take off of all of, whether it's the podcast, whether it is the, I mean, the pantheon of brands you've worked with. I would say that um, one of the things that I feel most proud of was actually turning down the CEO role at Sterling. Um, I was at Sterling and, and was the president at Sterling for 18 years and was it was part of the organization for over 20. And I was the number two person in the company behind the CEO. And the CEO was um, somebody who put a lot of trust in, in my abilities and is part of the reason I was able to be so successful as president. But when he wanted to evolve to chairman, I was next in line for the opportunity and he offered me the CEO job at a time when I was beginning to think about my exit strategy because I had so many other things that I wanted to do. But I had an awful lot of success at Sterling. I had an awful lot of power. I was making a lot of money and it was very scary for me to consider leaving. I had originally thought that I would leave after my earnout, which was a five-year earnout, um, which would have meant that I left in 2013. I didn't leave until 2016. Um, and so for me, it was about letting go of the fear of what I would lose by giving up this position and more and putting more faith in my abilities to make all the things that I still wanted to happen, happen. Um, but that was really one of the hardest decisions of my life. Um, very few people thought that I would ever leave. And I knew that there was still a lot of runway that I wanted to travel. And there was still a lot of things that I wanted to do. And being president of a brand new consultancy was not going to be the conditions that would lead to my being able to do those things. And I remember being at a conference and listening to, there was a managing director at Puma who was talking about leaving Puma and then starting her own business. And she, somebody asked her, you know, how did she ultimately do it? And she said she felt like her life at that point prior to, to leaving was like being on a trapeze and that she wasn't just holding on with her, with her hands. She was like holding on with her elbows and her legs and, she was so tightly wound into that trapeze that the only way to let go was to just drop. And ultimately that's what she had to do in order to be able to reach her next peak. And, and I felt that was exactly how I felt at the time. I was just so sort of pretzeled into this trapeze position that the only way to let go was to just completely break away at that time. And, and ultimately I did. I probably spent more time breaking away than I really needed to. I went from working five days a week to three days a week and then three days a week to one day a week. And it was, and my, actually it was my former partner that said, don't go cold turkey. It's gonna be very hard emotionally to just give it all up at once. And I probably took his advice a little bit too much to heart and took a little bit too long to extract myself. That is so, oh, that's so beautiful that you, that you look back at the things that you, you could choose in your, in your past, the things to cherish and you choose something that you, that you didn't do. That's, <laughs> that's such a great contrast to how the outside looking in, we think it's stories are made by, by what people choose to do. Right. And, and it's so interesting to hear you say, and I think it's so. I think that's so powerful. There's something universal, universally true about some of the more powerful things that we ever 
that ever happen in our lives are the things we choose not to do. Right. There's a, a, uh, an author, uh, uh, this Swami in India, and I love his books. And, and he said one time to someone in his ashram, you know, what's great about me, all of the things I didn't do. He's 94 years old. And, oh, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, it's exactly what, what you're talking about. That is, it's interesting to think about framing a life and, and what you chose not to do. Well, how, how would have your life, how would it have been different? Uh, oh my God. It would have been, chosen I mean, life? being an executive in a publicly traded company and running a business is, is it fills up your entire life and everything else becomes secondary. At least it was for me because I was so, I felt so responsible for the PL of the company. And so every decision is important and, and every client is important and every project is important and it becomes completely engulfing. It takes over your entire life. And for many, many years, that was great. And I loved it and I loved being consumed by it. And I loved being it so immersed in it all, but if you are a person that still has dreams about doing other things, you find that you're putting those things off and you get to a place where, well, if not now, when? And I didn't want to be in a position where I looked back and thought about the things that I didn't do with regret, because I don't know that you ever really do get over regret. You know, you can get over grief and you can get over sadness you can metabolize those things, but I don't know anybody that's ever metabolized regret. And I just did not want to be in a position where I was continuing to do things because I was afraid of doing something else or because I was afraid that I wouldn't succeed at doing something else. It was very comfortable to be continually successful at something that I was successful at. You know, there was not quite a formula to it, but a certain um, repetitive nature of that endeavor that enabled me to understand what it took to be successful. And so for me, I, I started to become really afraid of having so many regrets that I would not be able to um, really fulfill everything that I wanted to do. And it would be solely because of fear and insecurity. And I just had to take that step into the unknown. And one thing that I can say about making difficult decisions is that they're really only difficult before you make them. <laughs> Once you make them, they don't feel as difficult anymore. Then it feels like what took me so long, or at least in my case, it did. Um, and then the other thing is, and this is something I learned from Milton Glaser, and I'm still still practicing it. You know, you can see the world in two ways. You can see it in as a world of abundance, where there really is enough for everybody if you share. Or there's a world of scarcity if you're just trying to hold it all tight to yourself. And I think that when we're looking into the vast unknown of our future, that it's much easier to envision what we're giving up than it is what we might gain. Because what we might gain hasn't manifested yet. And so it's much easier to sort of live in that fear as opposed to that hope of what can happen. And, and that's really something that helped shape ultimately my decision-making. I heard a factoid the other day, Debbie, that on this topic, that the number one um, commandment or mandate, if you add up all of them in the Old Testament and New Testament, the number one thing that's said more than anything else, and I think it's three times more than the next on the list, is do not fear. It's really hard not to fear, James. It's so hard because we're hardwired to want to protect ourselves. You know, that's in the reptilian brain. It's the oldest part of the brain. It's impossible to control that part of the brain. The reptilian brain is responsible for all of our involuntary behavior, our digestion, our metabolism, eye blinking, heart beating, all of those things. We can't will those things to happen or not to happen. And the adrenaline rush that we feel when we are confronted with danger, that isn't something that we can will either. We can't say, okay, adrenaline, kick in, keep me safe. That happens involuntarily. So we are hardwired to experience any, any type of uncertainty with vulnerability. 
And so if you're in that, in a place where you're waiting to feel better or hoping that you won't be scared when you try something you have never tried before, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the conundrum in all of this, that that's never going to happen. If you'll only begin to feel more comfortable doing something you haven't done when you start doing it. And then through the successful repetition of any endeavor, you begin to attain some confidence in it. This is almost a, a trite question, but I have a feeling there will be something, something wise in your perspective on this. What would your illuminated view perspective on the world now say to the 29 year old Debbie, the 30 year old Debbie? Oh, you know, that's a tough one. I would probably urge myself to not go out with so many losers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe not losers, but people that were just not very nice to me. Um, and then people that I ended up not being very nice to as well. Um, moisturize. <laughs> Um, but seriously, what would I tell myself? I would tell myself to not worry so much. Worrying doesn't really do anything. It just gives you some sort of false sense of peace of mind that somehow if you're worrying about it, you're controlling it or you're controlling an outcome. And that's not the case at all. So I would, I would say worry less. I I've always been a big worrier. Um, I wish that I could rephrase that and say, I wish that I was a big warrior but that's not the case. <laughs> you know, I've been a big worrier um, and, and controlling that or moderating that or calibrating that is something I still, I still work on. Well, you mentioned uh, regret and, and this is a podcast that's, um, that's focused on the interior. I love, I love your series of what matters and uh, with, with artists and creators, the interior journey of, of, uh, our interior life of a creator. This podcast is dedicated to the interior lives of creators. I want to touch on a few questions that you ask others in that in that series, if you don't mind. No, um, no, I love that. What is the thing you like doing most in the world? Making things. I love making things. It could be a podcast. It could be a lesson plan. It could be a meal. I just made a piece of furniture behind me with um, an, a, an empty milk crate and pom poms. Um, I just love making things. Oh, that's beautiful. What is the first memory you have of being creative? I thought when I was very little that I could make my own perfume, and so I would crush up rose petals and then add talcum powder and baby oil. And it ended up being a sort of goopy mess, a goopy pink mess. But, um, but I remember really, really, um, hoping that I could make something wonderful with this concoction of ingredients. Isn't that magical of the, those early ideas of, of I can combine these things and yeah. one plus one plus one is going to be right? 10 on the right? other side. Combinatorial creativity right there. Yeah. Okay. Um, what makes you cry? Oh, James, everything makes me cry. I probably cry five times a week. (sighs) Sad movies, heartbreaking situations in the world, um, people dying, people being sick, fear, sometimes being so overwhelmed with happiness, I'll cry. Dumb commercials, my nephew graduating from middle school, uh, my niece winning an archery competition. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a crybaby. I am a crybaby. Is that sensitivity your superpower? No, I don't think so. I actually think that, um, well, I do think some sensitivity is my superpower. I would say more um, being able to recognize certain patterns. So pattern, certain pattern recognition, I'm, I'm very highly skilled in that realm. Um, I would say that the crying, I also, I also cry when I'm upset, whereas in the past I used to get angry. You know, I was mentioning that before. So now rather than get angry, I tend to get so upset that I cry. But I do think that anger is really a mask for deep grief that you're unwilling or unable to um, 
assess or access. Um, and so I do cry a lot more easily now. And I think that has replaced a great deal of um, what was anger. Mm. It sounds like a healthier evolution. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Painful nonetheless, but healthier perhaps. What do you hate most about yourself? I love that you ask these questions. That's the question I've gotten most pushback from people. They're always like, hate is a very strong word. Um, I, oh, I hate a lot of things about myself, unfortunately. Um, I really hate my thighs. Um, I hate my neck. Uh, I hate my insecurity. I hate my self-doubt. I hate my lack of athleticism. I hate that I'm lazy sometimes. I hate that I'm impatient. Yeah. I mean, those. it is a strong word, but I would say that I really do honestly hate those things. Has your relationship with those things changed over time? Has that hate become almost something you witness from afar or still just visceral? Jaded acceptance. Jaded mm. <laughs> acceptance. Yeah. What do you love most about yourself? I love my creativity. I love my persistence. I love my resilience. I love the notion that you can just keep building and growing and evolving. And I have endless faith in that. I love my hope. I love how I feel about my nieces and nephews and my pets. I love my relationship with my wife and I love what it's taken to get there. Mm. So there you have some loves. No, that's perfect. Okay. Eight minutes. So this is perfect. Um, we'll do the last question. So last question for you, Debbie, and maybe you've mentioned some of these things woven into other answers, but can you tell me three stories in your life that have helped shape who you have become? today absolutely i'll start with a really horrible one and and that was my childhood <laughs> the dark years as i call them um i i really experienced a lot of violence growing up um emotional physical and sexual and i do have to say that there i don't have any gratitude about any of that however i do feel that it's contributed to who I am today and being able to do the work that I do to eradicate sexual violence and the rape kit backlog with Mariska Hargitay and the Joyful Heart Foundation really helps my life feel like it makes sense. And that is something that I did talk to Tim about on, on his podcast. And that is something that remains really one of the centerpieces of my life today. I don't know that I'd be doing that work otherwise. And I do feel like it's the most important work I do. So that's one story. Um, I guess another would be the initial um, activity, I guess is the word for it, on the blog, on the then first design blog, Speak Up, where I was um, criticized for my work uh, on the Burger King logo and the then uh, logo for Star Wars episode two, Attack of the Clones. And I was called a corporate clown and a she-devil. And at the time was so humiliated, considered leaving the, the design business. Um, May 3rd, 2003 was really one of the worst days of my life because it really was a takedown of my entire career on this blog. Something that I had never even knew existed. Um, who knew what a weblog was in 2003? Um, but that ended up being one of the most important days of my life. And I would say that almost all of the opportunities that came my way, I can point back to that, that experience and my getting involved with Speak Up and ultimately writing for Speak Up and becoming friends with Armin Vitt and Brandy Gomez Palacio and really being a member of their family now and then writing for print magazine and, you know, now I'm one of the owners of printmag.com. And I even think my podcast came out of that 
that writing that I was doing on the blog back then. Um, so that's that's probably the second. And then I guess the third would be um, pursuing and, and meeting my my wife, who, you know, at the time was just trying to get her to be on my podcast. And little did I know that we'd end up married. So those are those are three big defining moments for me that have shaped the life I have today. It is. It's interesting that you balance this gratitude, I, even in the the language, delicately choosing the words because gratitude might not be the the right word for it, but knowing that there are contributions from areas in lives we would never have designed ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And on story number two, I I built a. And, and the precursor to this podcast in many ways is building a company to a $400 million valuation in two years and selling it for a fire sale two years later, fraction of that and, and take down pieces written that, uh, around this, uh, high flying failure that we're so, I'm so thankful for those as well, because it, it was like, okay, this is inescapable part of the identity, uh, around me of failure and by embracing it i'm the founder that founders when they're going through really tough times reach out to because yeah. it is a part of that my identity that at one point was inescapable and now is invaluable that for so many i know for the lesser version of myself i would have never referenced the failure if i could have come up with some mask for it or some way to gloss over it Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, at the time that I had that takedown on Speak Up, May 2nd, 2003, that really, I thought was the worst day of my life. And now I can look back on it 18 years later and say, that is the most important day of my professional life. Bar none. Okay, three minutes. So I'm going to ask one more question about that. Absolutely. Um, did it take, was it two days later? You saw the hope on the other side of that? Oh, no, 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 two, no, no, no. Two years no, later? No. I would say, I would say within a few months, I started to see that there were opportunities that were coming out of that experience, but by no means had the ability to forecast into the future what was still to come and so it was really one thing that led to another, led, led to another small steps, tiny, small steps that ultimately turned into a transformative leap. Debbie, thank you so much for the generosity of time and insight. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, DebbieMillman.com will take you to pretty much everything. And I'm also Debbie Millman on Twitter and uh, Instagram and all those social places. Well, I love your tweets. Um, I recommend people follow you on Twitter, especially to get the new editions of the podcast, as well as um, as the series that you're doing on thank what you. matters. So thank, thank you. you so much, Debbie. James, thank you so much. This has been such a, a really wonderful conversation, and I've loved having it with you. Thank you. Bye, 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 bye.